show a writer a screenplay writer which is a you know kind of a double (laughs) really bad way to introduce someone uh mr brian gadawa hello sir hi alex uh how are you doing today good yeah it's just screenwriter (laughs) yeah you know as i was saying i was like oh i just said the word writer and I was like, oh, this this has already started off horribly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it feels wrong. See, what, what you always got to do first is Hollywood screenwriter and novel author. Yeah. See, I'd already <laughs> committed to saying writer. I was like, all right, how can I somehow rearrange this next part? And, well, frankly, it didn't work out. And that's why you're the best-selling writer and I'm host of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, your books are the Nephilim series. Is that the title? Yeah, it's called Chronicles of the Nephilim. Chronicles and the Nephilim. Yeah, and there's eight of them, and I just released the most recent one uh, this last month called Jesus Triumphant, but uh, the first ones start way back in the primeval history of uh, Noah and the flood and Enoch and all that kind of stuff. So um, this sort of marks the climax of the series, and um, which is called Chronicles of the Nephilim. Cool. So what's the... And what's the hook? What's the, what are we talking about here? <laughs> well, the hook of it is this. Um, what I Years ago, oh, like maybe four and a half years ago, I, I was actually writing a screenplay about Noah because I thought, wouldn't this be cool? No one's, no one's ever done Noah. And, uh, or, you know, Hollywood hasn't done Noah in a long, long time. And when I was looking into it, I discovered there was a lot of really bizarre, interesting things connected with, the, with Noah's flood that a lot of religious people don't like tried to avoid because it's weird. And um, when I looked in, I thought, wow, this would make a great story. You know, there's this this ancient uh, verse in the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and it says that the uh, angelic sons of God in heaven, uh, you know, looked down on, on the daughters of men and, and basically had sex with them. And they bore them Nephilim or giants. That's the word Nephilim means giants. And these were mighty warriors of old. And this all happened right before the Noah's flood. And it talks about how, you know, then their violence, uh, you know, just flooded the land. And that's part of the reason why God destroyed the, the, the world and stuff. So this was such a fascinating concept that I, I sort of avoided because it was weird. But when I looked into it, I discovered, oh my gosh, there's, this isn't just a weird obscurity of history. Um, there's connections to ancient mythology, but also there's a storyline that goes in the Bible that covers these giants and giants start showing up in other places in the Bible too. And so I said, I've got to tell this story. And I wrote this, I wrote the script actually for a movie and, you know, I went around Hollywood trying to get interest in, you know, you really, it, it would be like a hundred million dollar movie. So, you know, you really have to have good connections for something like that to take, to take hold. And then lo and behold, I heard, oh, I discovered 
Uh, Darren Aronofsky was trying to make his movie on Noah, and I thought, oh, well, I'll probably be beat, then he'll probably make his movie. And um, so I went ahead and, and wrote it as a novel, and I thought, well, you know, if, if he has anything similar to mine, at least mine will be out first, so people will know I didn't copy him. And lo and behold, his movie was not at all like my, my book series. Um, and actually, was, I thought the movie was actually pretty bad. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, so I looked into this storyline and all this stuff about giants and watchers. You know, what are watchers? You know, I, I looked into that and found out that, you know, the watchers are these, these, the term for these, these angels in heaven who came down and, and it says that they fell from heaven. And, you know, people have heard about this story about the, the you know, Lucifer and the fall from heaven. But this is a different fall, actually. And, and that fall is described in other ancient books, like the book of First Enoch. And this is a you know, very positive, respected Jewish source of, of the ancient world. And this all kind of ties in with this Genesis event and, and how these, these watchers fell from heaven. They were rebelled against God, right? And they wanted to set up their own authority and power on earth and draw worship away from God. And so that's and, and they wanted to sort of violate God's created order. And that's one of the reasons why they had these Nephilim giants. And that's all part of their rebellion against God. And so it was really fascinating, to say the least. And, and so I started with the book called Noah Primeval. And um, it sold so well that I, it, it, it enabled me to launch onto the series. And the next book I wrote was called Enoch Primordial, which is actually like a prequel. Because that was sort of like when the original fall happened, you know. And um, so I go into all this ancient stuff. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to draw not just from the Bible, but from other ancient historical and mythological sources as well. So I incorporated a lot of stuff about ancient Mesopotamia and the Sumerian gods and the Sumerian cultures of that time period. Because I, you know, I feel like there, there's a reason why there's a lot of similarities between all these differing uh, cultures. You know, if you look at ancient Sumerian texts, you look at even later texts, Babylonia or uh, Canaanite texts, you find a lot of similarities, even with Egyptian. And, you know, traditionally, most people uh, tend to sort of tick that down to, oh, well, that's because they just evolved out of one another. You know, they sort of borrowed from one another. And that's not necessarily true because sometimes these these cultures don't have that kind of, of um, connection, you know, and, but yet there's still a lot of similarities. And so, you know, I think that there's a, there's a reason why, and that is because there is a, these primeval historical events of these ancient peoples, they really do occur, but different cultures spread out and they, you know, they give it their own unique spin of, of how they interpreted it, right? And so I take mine from the Bible. I, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, and so I I, um, you know, I have a high regard for the Bible and, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to incorporate all those other myths and make sense of them. Like, where did they really come from? What, what were things really like back then? And that was sort of what the series does. And Chronicles of the Nephilim is this, what the premise of the series was, I wanted to go through the Bible and retell all the stories there that touch upon giants. Because again, what is what are these giants in there? Are they just oddities of nature, or are they connected to a storyline? And they turns out they are. And you know, there's not a lot that the Bible says about these things, about these creatures, but they do show up in key moments. And so what I do is I fill in with fiction the stuff that we don't know, but make it all consistent with the stuff that we do know. And um, so 
so uh for example you know we all we all know about uh uh king david right and and goliath david and goliath right the classic story right goliath the nine foot nine giant well guess what it turns out that there's more giants that are described in the books of samuel and chronicles about king david's reign there's five other giants who are after king david and they're literally trying to kill him right but they're only briefly mentioned and people don't really study it close enough to catch this and so i said okay well i'm going to tell the story of these other five giants and why were they hunting king david and uh, in fact there, there's an indication that they might have been part of a, a um an ancient military cult of assassins and so you know this is where i fill out those stories and and in david ascendant which is a you know like the seventh novel of the series i i tell that story of how david is being hunted by these other giants so you can see how it's like oh you know, this is stuff that you don't necessarily read about in the Bible, but it is there. It's just we're not told a lot about what it means. Anyway, so that's sort of the the the, the generic picture. You know, there's you know many people have heard about the story of of Joshua in the land of Canaan, right? And and there's the famous story where he goes into the land. He has, they Moses sends spies into Canaan. Joshua is one of those spies, but the twelve spies they come back and they say there's giants in the land. And we can't go there, you know, and it's like, what? We've been wandering for 40 years in the desert and God wants us to go into the promised land, but it's full of giants. And what is that about? Is that just a sort of a generic way of saying, you know, oh, these are warriors we can't, uh, you know, we can't defeat? No, there's much more to it than that because these giants, it says, were related to the Nephilim that went back to the Genesis flood. And the Nephilim were considered the seed of the serpent. And I'll explain that in a second, but... Basically, these, you know, there's, there's this historical battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. And when the, when the Jews are coming into the promised land, that seed of the serpent is there. They're supposed to dispossess the land of that seed of the serpent and take it over for God, right? And so what is this seed of the serpent? What is it? Well, I think it goes back to an even more ancient text, which is Genesis um, 3. And that's the, 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 you know, we read about the, the, um, uh, the, the, the Garden of Eden, right? And the curse on, on Eve and the serpent. And when God curses the serpent, you know, the serpent that tempts Eve and all that, God curses the serpent and he says this in Genesis 3.15. He says that, um, you know, you will crawl on your belly. But, but he says specifically that um, your, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed and she will crush your head and you will bite her heel or bite his heel actually, singular, and it's male by, at that point. So the point there that he's saying is that uh, scholars explain that this is the first messianic promise that a Messiah will come out of the seed of Eve and he will ultimately, you know, and there will be a seed of the serpent or basically those who rebel against God and they will be fighting against those who follow God. And this seed of the serpent is what kind of fleshes out, begins to flesh itself out in Genesis 6 with the Nephilim and and it, it grows to eventually, you know, show us that the, the, the whole promised land of Canaan is filled with these giants, filled with these, these giant clans. And even in, I wrote another book called, uh, in the series called Abraham Allegiant. During the time of Abraham, it, you know, most people think of Abraham as this sort of, yeah, he's a sedentary pastor, you know, who, pastoral uh, shepherd, you know, who, you know, he fathers Israel, but. Ultimately, out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come Israel, right? But 
But there's more to it than that because in Genesis 14, it talks about how Abraham actually was a warrior because it says that he took 316 of his own household men and went after an army, an army of guys who had taken his nephew Lot as hostage. And, and so he rescues them. So this whole series of Chronicles of the Nephilim is a very sort of a, a series of warrior stories as these warriors fight. But there's something else that happens in Genesis 14 that a lot of people don't catch. It talks about how this army that captured Lot, well, it said that they actually went throughout the land of Canaan and conquered a bunch of clans. And the names of these clans are the names of giant clans. So they're specifically wiping out the giants. Why? What's going on there? And you wouldn't know it when you read the text in Genesis until you read later where it describes these clans as being giants, such as the Anakim or the Amalekites, uh, the Rephaim, and this kind of stuff. So there are these clan, giant clan names. And, and so Abraham Allegiant is my novel that tells the story of giants in the time of Abraham. So these are the sort of what each of the novels tell is they tell about these different time periods where, where giants show up in, in these famous Bible stories, right? And um, that, was, that was sort of my goal. My goal was to be true to the Bible as much as possible, yet to fill it in with fictional you know, stories that would be consistent with it. And then last, you know, lastly, what I wanted to do was I wanted to sort of bring a fantasy edge to the story. So when you read the Chronicles of the Nephilim, it's like reading Chronicles of, the Nar- of Narnia or more specifically Lord of the Rings because there's these mythical creatures that come out in the stories. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to basically do this. I wanted to sort of show the spiritual reality that the Bible talks about, but we don't see. And so in order to show that, I, I brought in some of these mythical characters like, for instance, Leviathan. Leviathan is a mythical sea dragon of chaos that shows up in the Bible and in other ancient Near Eastern religions. Um, and he basically represents chaos. Uh, a lot of religious peep folks sometimes think that he's a dinosaur, but I, I don't think so. If you study it, it's clear that he's a, he's a poetic uh, symbol of chaos. Why? Because the ancient cultures, including the Jews, believed that um, their God, the, what they would do is they would describe their God as the superior God by saying that he drank up the rivers or conquered the seas and crushed the sea dragon. And this description of their God destroying the sea dragon was a way of saying our God, and this is, this is important, our God pushes back the chaos of the sea, so to speak, uh, because the sea in the ancient world was very chaotic to the, right? It was something they couldn't... Um, domesticate. They could domesticate the land, but they couldn't domesticate the sea. That was out of their control. So our God pushes back the chaos and establishes his covenanted order. And lo and behold, that's exactly what the way Moses talks about it in in many passages like Psalm 74, where he talks about how when God was establishing his covenant with Moses and the Red Sea, he crushed the heads of Leviathan. That's a poetic way of saying God's establishing his covenanted order by pushing back the disorder of the world around them. So this is a very common notion. So I said, well, you know what? That's a very poetic uh, image that the Bible writers use, but I wanted to make it literal to capture that chaos. So I literally have a sea dragon chaos that actually shows up throughout the entire series, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And, And that's one way that I sort of 
you know, depicted the poetic spiritual reality by sort of depicting it in a real way, right? And so that's another element that I kind of brought into the storyline. So it's a it's an exciting sort of series that meshes myth and history and ancient research and and um, you know I draw from many different sources, Jewish sources, legends, as well as uh, ancient Sumerian, Babylonian, and Canaanite texts, and I sort of bring it all and bring it under this this umbrella of the biblical storyline of what I call the war of the seed. Now these, uh, by the way, very interesting. That's why I just sat there and wrapped attention that whole time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't talk too much. No, but, no. I was, I was just going like, Ooh, this is great. I was, I've, I've kind of forgot I'm supposed to be hosting. Um, <laughs> so when we're talking giants, this is just kind of, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. So back then probably the average height was what? Five foot four, maybe. Yeah. So when we say giants, are we talking, would they be giants to us? Like, are we talking NBA players? Well, you know, I think it's roughly that. It's roughly NBA and a little bit above. Now, okay. there are different people who've done this research on the Nephilim and on giants. I'm aware of them. And, you know, they'll make claims that uh, they're giants as tall as 30 feet and stuff like this. I'm not, I'm not in that camp. I don't, I don't believe that. I'm, I'm a more realistic pers- uh, uh, interpreter of that. And I basically, from what I've researched in terms of real ancient documents that like um, Josephus and Pliny um, and various other um, ancient historians, uh, Tacitus and such, they'll, in the course of their histories, they'll make mention of various giants, you know, that show up in history. And they all tend to be roughly between like seven and a half feet to uh, the tallest that I've caught is a ten and a half feet. In Josephus, Josephus writes about, he's a famous Jewish historian. He writes about the time of Christ in the first century. Well, he writes about more than that, but um, I, I drew from Josephus. And he writes about a, a, a particular giant who was ten and a half feet tall, right? Uh, there are, there are, there's um, other Roman historians that talk about giants about nine and a half feet tall. And Goliath, was reputed to be about nine and a half. And that's more in the upper, upper edge. You know, the ancient Egyptians wrote texts about how they, they saw Canaanites again from the land of Israel or Canaan. Uh, they write about Canaanite giants that called the Anakim again, the sons of Anak and the Anakim in the Bible are, are giants. And the Egyptian text references the sons of Anak as being, Roughly about, um, I think eight eight and a half feet tall was about their 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 dimension, you know. So these are, yeah, these are like NBA players and above, but I don't think they go beyond nine and a half, ten feet tall at the max. And um, so I'm kind of in that more uh, whatever. I'm in, I'm in that camp, you know. So um, and in the Bible, uh, the, there's there are a couple giant. Uh, there are two giants that are actually given their heights. One was Goliath at nine and a half feet tall. Um, and then another one was an Egyptian giant that was about, I think, um, seven and a half or eight feet tall. So that's not super huge. Like that's not 20 feet tall or anything like that. And, and I think that that's ridiculous. Quite honestly, I think it's, it's according to the laws of physics, it would be, you know, virtually impossible to have human beings 30 feet tall anyway. Yeah, that's been something that it's, it's been a sticking point with me when it, people reference giants is that there is bi- biologically, I forget the rule is, but it's like the, the double parallel rule or something. But essentially, there's an upper limit of what this body shape can hold. 
Yes. And, yeah. Now, uh, sure, yeah. there were giant, there were dinosaurs that were that big, but like you say, they're different uh, creature types and and reptilians and such, and and the yeah. human body and such. It it just, yeah. They, I'm 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 of I'm thinking that the the dominant amount of them were like seven and a half to eight and a half feet tall, actually. So, uh, but yeah, yeah to a five and a half foot tall person, those are giants. But really, you know, to us, that a seven and a half foot tall person is a giant too. So, oh, of course, it's just one of those things that, and this is a sticking point for a lot of people that are reading these texts that i mean frankly there's a lot of just kind of annoyed skeptics out there that are just looking to pounce on anything so they're like uh giants but if you do it in the in the realm of you know just an nba player you know seven foot four yeah. you know that's a i mean it's not reasonable but it's totally within the realm of a thing that could have happened which i'm you know i i just not as picky about things so i just you know i want to make yeah. sure that we're not talking about some 30 foot thing because one you're not going to beat a 30 footer in a battle and then two they're not going to be able to stand or be a human, you know? Yeah, the amount of food that they would have to eat is so ridiculous that, yeah. you know, and of course, you know, there's the simple fact of there's no physical evidence of them anywhere. So, you know, I'm not saying, you know, absence of uh, absence of evidence does not mean is not evidence of absence, uh, but it is until proven uh, the lack of evidence does, you know, should weigh somewhat on, on, on a, a on us at least indicating that now there is evidence of you know 10 foot tall type people throughout history but um rare rare ones but you know yeah so anyway so yeah that's the in fact there's evidence you know i don't want to get too deep into this but there's scholarly evidence that that um the measurements for goliath there are variety there are variations of texts uh called the septuagint um that is highly respected in the history of translation of the bible and um, some scholars make arguments that th there's other texts that say Goliath was really more on the order of, I believe, six feet nine, which, uh, again, would could still clearly be considered a giant in that day, uh, but not as tall as the nine foot nine, right? And, and again, from my perspective, it doesn't matter, but... But uh, those are interesting little factoids that are out there. Oh, yeah. Well, there's there's a thing with, you know, everybody talks about uh, uh, Napoleon being short. And part of that is a mistranslation of the French foot and the English foot. So in our modern uh, American uh, imperial measurement, in, in Napoleon was about five foot seven. Wasn't oh. sure. He was slightly above average height. But because one, they wanted to make fun of him. And two, there was a difference. Yeah. In, so for me, translating that back 5,000 years, I'm totally okay with, nah, it's a giant shrug your shoulders because some NBA sized guy fighting a five foot four, you know, person. Totally, that's giant versus tiny guy. I think the story works, you know. Totally, again, again. totally. So I, I was interested to see that you brought in Gilgamesh, which is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I read yeah. that in college and I always thought that was great. But um, I mean, I don't know. How to, I, I mean, that's in all politeness, but isn't that like a little contra not contradictory, but I mean, the story comes before the Noah story, at least as far as I understand the scholarship of it. And the guy's got a different name. And it no, kind of, yeah. It, yeah, no, actually, it, actually, it's interesting you say it. Maybe in terms of the actual texts. Uh, yeah, the Gilgamesh story is the first, the oldest hero story that actually the oldest narrative that we have the a complete narrative of a hero story and it by the way you read it and it reads like a modern story almost i mean it, it's really amazing how the story structure is very similar great storytelling stays the same throughout the centuries uh but yeah it was written long before uh the the book of genesis but the 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 time period which it occurs 
it, first of all, it's it's a um, Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a story of what most scholars believe is probably a historical character who's been heroicized. You know, fantasy, um, sort of like uh, what's the word? What am I trying to think? Like they 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 sort of build him up and tell myths about him and that kind of a thing. So the Epic of Gilgamesh actually most most scholars you know agree that it's after the flood his story actually occurs after the flood but but when you know we don't know for sure and there are there are king lists that uh where that Gilgamesh shows up in and so and if you if you try to tie that link that to the bible it's very difficult but um the reason why i wrote Gilgamesh immortal is the third book in the series chronicles of the nephilim and yeah one most people do respond by saying, wait a minute, Gilgamesh isn't in the Bible. Well, actually, there are some theories that he may be connected to some character that is mentioned in the Bible. And so I, you know, and I always wanted to retell that story. And and what, what was so fascinating to me was when I, when I researched the actual story of Gilgamesh and, and there were so many things of that story that fit in with much of the the storyline that I was telling already, it blew my mind. Like characters like Inanna. Inanna shows up in Gilgamesh, and, and Inanna was a very important character. Inanna is the god, ancient goddess of in Sumeria. Um, she's the goddess of sex and violence and um, and war. I mean, and uh, she shows up in my storyline. She shows up in Gilgamesh. There's a lot of these parallels that occur that are amazing to me that I didn't make up. And so it all integrates and you read the book, you'll, it, it stays very true to the Epic of Gilgamesh, but it's reinterpreted and spun in, in the context of my storyline and people will love it because you'll see what it turns out to be. It's basically a tragic story because Gilgamesh doesn't end well, but it all wraps up and connects into the, into the series. So people will actually uh, love it if they, if they have a little patience realizing it doesn't start out with the Bible. But for example, let me, t- let me explain. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, at the end of this story, in, in the real epic of ancient history, he wants to find eternal life. So he hears that Noah is, is, is in this ancient land of Dilmun far away, which is where the immortals live, because Noah was the only one who survived the flood. And, and, and now, of course, in that time period, Noah was called Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim, exactly. And, but, but scholars, you know, say that it's it's the same character. As a matter of fact, if you look at the, um, the spelling of Utnapishtim, it's possible that Noah is a derivative of that because in the middle of the word Utnapishtim, Noah is in there. But anyway, um, so, so he seeks out Utnapishtim and because he believes, he's heard that Utnapishtim has eternal life. And of course he finds them. Um, and so in my storyline, that's Noah, but it's not, it, it doesn't turn out to be the, the, uh, the kind of person that, that Gilgamesh thought he was, because of course he's the biblical character, right? But anyway, nonetheless, you know, all this just to say that, that people who, who are familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh will like the story because I stay true to it, but they'll be blown away at how it all connects to the Bible in, in, a, in a fascinating way, in a, in a, you know, based on a scholarly theory that's out there. You know, again, this is theory, we don't know and, and such, but um, yeah, so I, I really had a fun time doing that one. Yeah, that's always, it's just Gilgamesh has been something that spoke to me because I, growing up, you know, growing up in the West, so I was very familiar with the Christian stories and reading that in, in college was just like, hey, wait a second, this is, 
such an echoing, you know, this is this very similar tale of the flood, but the flood was more local in that one. And the gods were really annoyed because I think they, the gods flood the world because the humans were being too loud or something silly like that. Yeah. 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 What a, you know, which, it's yeah. interesting, though, because there is um, uh, I have a scholar who's done who's done made an argument that I think is pretty good that the, the belief that that um, that the people were so loud uh, that that the gods you know want to shut them up. It's really not that they're loud, clamoringly loud, as if a, a loud crowd yelling. It's it's the loudness is a symbol or a metaphor for very much the way we would would say it, which is like their sin, their evil was so loud that it caused the gods to respond. So in a way, that could be very much similar to the Bible as well. However, um, there is one element that I that I bring another element that I bring into the Chronicles of the Nephilim that helps me make sense of the storyline, but it was a creative license, but it fits with the Bible and it fits with ancient history was this. You know, if you look back at ancient history, whether it's Sumeria, Mesopotamia, um, Babylon, Canaan, they all had pantheons of gods. Pantheons of gods were like a hierarchy of deities, right? You know, like the uh, the Greek gods on Olympus, right? Well, they all had that. Long before Greece, they all had this. And, um, and but you know, they, they really you know they treated these beings with really reverence and 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 belief that they're true and so i thought to myself though how can i you know oh, oh so i wanted to say though that that in the bible god's you know the the moses talks about these other gods cuz you know the basic principle is that israelites worship one god not the pantheon right but he treats those other gods as if they have a spiritual reality so, for instance, there are passages in the Bible where it, Moses says, you know, these people, like in Deuteronomy, he talks about how they sacrifice to the gods, but the gods are demons. So there's this, you know, in other words, there's this, the possible spiritual reality, demonic reality behind the other gods. So I said to myself, what if the gods of the ancient world, which were treated with great you know, reverence and also reality to these people, what if they were real spiritual beings with supernatural powers, only they weren't the gods as they understood, but they were these fallen watchers, which were angels from heaven who were masquerading as gods in order to draw worship away from them. That would give a sort of a demonic reality to these other ancient gods within this biblical context, see? And that's what I wrote. So in my storyline, I write about gods like Anu and Inanna. I write about Marduk, the god of, of Babylon. I write about the Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah, all throughout this series as if they're these real beings. And they do sort of make, they are connected. You know, the, the same beings show up in the different, you know, in the different uh, nations and stuff. And what if they were these angelic watcher beings? At least that gives them the demonic reality. And so I have a whole storyline that goes throughout where these gods are actually fighting and jockeying for power as well as they're fighting against the, uh, you know, the God of Israel, right, shall we say. And, but this is not, like I said, this is not entirely manufactured because another element of the Chronicles of Nephilim that goes throughout the storyline is this fascinating concept that shows up in the Bible as well as these other ancient texts, and that's this. If you look at Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, it talks about this notion that it, it says that at the t basically at the Tower of Babel, when 
you know, you know, you know that story where where after the flood, mankind is still still evil, and he ends up trying to unite in unity and to become a god himself. And they built this tower to the heavens called the Tower of Babel. And the tower to the tower of the heavens isn't because it was big and tall. What that was was that was a, a way of saying it was a tower that connected to the gods, and because they believe that ziggurats were holy cosmic mountains that connected heaven and earth and that the gods would come down. They built them like stairways because they thought that the gods could come down like a stairway from heaven to earth. See, And so at the top of these ziggurats, they had these temples where they would commune with the gods. This was their, their belief, right? And so um, it says that at the Tower of Babel, when God you know, spread out the nations and he confused the tongues, which there are also ancient texts that confirm the Bible in Sumeria. There's ancient texts that confirm the fact that there was a spreading out of a of, of confusion of languages at one point in time. And um, so when he spread them above the earth, it says that he gave them under the allotment or the authority of the sons of God, which I think is these fallen beings, right? But he says, but, for, but I kept Jacob or Israel for myself. So he's basically saying, and this notion goes throughout the Old Testament text, and even the New Testament, it gives this impression that God basically said this, okay, you people are evil on the earth. You won't, re you refuse to worship me. So I'm going to give you over to those gods that you worship. You're going to be under their authority. And they're, since they're really spiritual demonic realities, you're going to be under their authority and they're going to have territorial power over you. So different nations have different gods over them. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the God of Israel, and my land is going to be Canaan, and I'm going to go and take it back from the gods of Canaan. So this is a storyline, again, that's going throughout the Old Testament, and it even goes into the New Testament, by the way. Um, and, and so this is why you have this battle, like in, in the book of Daniel, these watchers or these, these gods that says that there's the, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, and this is... This is a term that references these spiritual deities behind the nations. So behind the nation of Greece, behind the nation of Persia, there's a prince or a authority, and they are battling with the prince of Israel, which was Michael. And it's like, what? So in other words, there's a spiritual warfare. In the ancient world, they believed that when the nations of the world battled, they had spiritual authorities behind them that were also battling. And by the way, this isn't just the Hebrews. Other, the other ancient uh, Babylonians believe this as well. So, but particularly the Hebrews understood this notion. So it's sort of like the nations of the, of the world are under bondage to these, these other entities, but, but Yahweh will one day, you know, and he promises that one day I will send Messiah, and Messiah will come and he will dispossess those nations. You know, the, the, the term is inheritance that, you know, these, these, God's inherited these other territories, but it said that Messiah would come and dispossess the inheritance and he would inherit all the nations away. He would take the inheritance away from those gods and he would have the inheritance and therefore he would ultimately inherit all the nations. Well, guess what? In the, in the story of Jesus, the Gospels, this is an element that a lot of Christians miss or a lot of people don't catch when they're reading the Bible. Yeah, Christ comes, he dies for the sins of, of, of his people and all this stuff. But it also talks about how he takes back the, he battles the principalities and powers. And this is a term for these, these authorities behind the nations. It says that he actually conquers them 
and he he parades them like a military triumph. He parades them in his ascension, and he takes back their authority. This is what the you know book of Ephesians talks about this. Um, uh, lots of different passages in the book of Philippians and all this stuff. The New Testament talks about Christ goes and wins back that authority from the principalities and powers. He battles it. And of course, at that time, the lead principality was Satan. And so he, you know, he, he literally binds Satan and his power and takes back this authority. This is what I write about in the Jesus Triumphant. It's sort of like the climax of the series where, you know, I don't just retell the story of Christ like, oh, yet another novel about Jesus going around teaching his teachings and the Romans crucified him. No, I'm actually showing an aside that hasn't been shown before, which is this spiritual warfare that's going on and how Christ is taking back the authority of the nations. And particularly in Canaan, he's defeating those evil deities. And I sort of show that spiritual reality in a way that, that hasn't been seen before. So it's a really fun and exciting, you know, again, showing the spiritual truth behind the veil that we don't normally get to see. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. The, um, the thing struck me, so I get confused again with this Bible stuff because there's, it's hard for me as somebody that's not like super well-versed. I mean, I've read the book. I just, you know, it's long, so I don't remember all of it, but I always get confused about this fallen angels, Satan, Lucifer, the tempter, the snake. So the, the, the Nephilim, the, 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 the watchers, the, the sons yeah. of these people that are, that we're following through your stories. These are the kind of almost half, you know, they've got a bit of angel DNA in them, essentially the fallen yeah. ones. Okay. Where does Satan fit into this? And is it Satan like, TV shows us like, you know, uh, the guy that runs hell or that's because that's not really in the Bible, right? That's some extra. Bible no. Stuff. Yeah. 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 The, unfortunately, a lot of what most people understand about the, um, you know, the basic narrative of Lucifer is it's got tradition behind it. And, and it does have some possible interpretations from the Bible, but it's not it is a tradition. It's not strictly biblical. And and the, the basics that, you know, the standard belief is this, is that you know, before uh, before the Garden of Eden, Satan and two thirds of his angels uh, fell from heaven, and and Satan was a cherub, which is a, a high angel in heaven, basically. And they fall, and then of course that's why he shows up in the garden, um, and then you know, uh, and then that's that's what goes on from there. But that's really not, I would argue, that's not really biblical. Now, there are Christians who argue that it is from certain texts, uh, such as Ezekiel and Isaiah, but these are very mythical texts, mythological texts that could be a reference, but they're not explicitly about that. So that's an interpretation. In other words, if you read those texts, you'll find out that they're actually referenced to specific kings of Babylon and king, a king of Tyre, and it's describing their fall in mythical terms. And Christians say, well, yeah, well, that because it says that you are son, uh, it says that you are Lucifer, son of the morning, to to the king of Tyre, right? Well, the problem is is that the word Lucifer is not in the text. Lucifer, it's actually son of the morning, which is the Venus star, and they get the word Lucifer from Lucifer is the Latin translation of the star of the morning, which is Venus, and so they think that Lucifer is this proper name of Satan, but it's not. And, um, you know, that it still could be a possible reference to, um, you know, the Venus star was often in the ancient world. They believe that the stars were both stars and deities. It's sort of a, 
both and type of thing. So sometimes they talk about them like they're stars in the sky. Like we, they didn't know they were big balls of gas, millions of, you know, billions of miles, light years away. Right. But they still thought that they were, they were glowing objects, you know, in the distance. And, but they also likened them to deities. It's sort of like a both and thing. So, so when they talk about how you thought you were star of the morning, you, you, you know, they're basically saying to, you know, to the King of Tyre that you thought you were a God. But you're not. You're gonna. You're gonna fall. I'm gonna crush Tyre, and I'm gonna destroy you and wipe you out. That's basically what they're saying. They're, and they're, you know, the the writer, like in Isaiah, is is referring to a mythical sort of reference point because the 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 king of Tyre thought he was like a mythical god, right? So he's sort of mocking him. So, but Christians draw from this, you know. And again, I'm not saying they're entirely wrong. I just don't necessarily believe it. So they get all these these myths and they apply them to Lucifer. But all I read, you know. In the Bible, it just basically Jesus says Lucifer, not Lucifer, Satan, uh, was a liar from the very beginning. So basically, all we know about him is he appears in the garden. We don't really know anything beyond that, and 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 that's all, you know. And um, another element of Satan is if you read the Old Testament text, it's it's not a proper name. Satan is not technically a proper name. Satan actually is the Hebrew transliteration for the word adversary or accuser and and so actually it's hasatanas and and it actually means the adversary and if you re, if you study it in the old testament he's not like this he's not necessarily this uh diabolically evil guy that runs around trying you know he, trying to do evil he's actually a part of god's heavenly council and his job is to accuse and he, I think he is, you know, pretty negative, but he brings the accusations before God's heavenly court. So my point here is just that in the Old Testament, the, the, the accuser, the adversary is more a part of God's court. It is a negative part of his court, I think. And he is kind of a bad guy, but not in the way that we, we understand him. And so by the time, you know, we get to the New Testament and um, there's more, that's revealed about Satan, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's just not the typical way that people envision him. So the way that I have sort of studied the text, and I, again, this is speculative and I'm not, you know, a hundred percent sure, but the way the Bible talks about him, you know, it, it, it's like this It's remember how I said that, um, you know, Deuteronomy, it says that God gave the nations under the authorities of all these different gods and stuff. But in the new Testament, all of a sudden, there's not as much talk about these other deities. There's only the talk of Satan. And it talks about him as if he's the god of this world, like he's the only one. It's almost like these other guys are now not there. Why? What's going on? It says he's the god of this world. You know, Satan has blinded the eyes of the, unbeing, of the, of the unbelievers and all this kind of stuff. Well, what I, what I think may be the case is Satan may have become the, that, that territorial authority behind Rome. And Rome happened to conquer the world. So if Rome has conquered the world, then it would make sense that his Roman territorial authority would be the god of the world, right? Because he'd be the supreme deity over the other, over, you know, the supreme demonic god over the other demonic gods, if that makes some sense, at least in terms of the biblical depiction. So when Messiah comes on the scene, when Jesus comes on the scene, his battle against the god of this world is sort of like he's, he's, he's battling spiritually the chief the chief uh, 
uh, fallen one, right? And and that's kind of what's going on in the New Testament. And if you take out the chief guy, the all the other guys fall with him. That kind of that kind of notion. So, yeah, I, I think that this whole notion of him being Lord over hell comes from you know like uh, Dante maybe or or uh, 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 Milton, but it's really not in the Bible because Satan is not the Lord of hell. Hell is actually um, Gehenna. It's the word for Gehenna. And that's more a reference to the final judgment. It's not a reference to some place that exists now. When you die, you go to hell and you burn in fire. No, Gehenna or hell is a reference to in the final days of judgment when God judges everything, that's where the burning takes place. But in the meantime, biblically, it's Hades or the underworld, the world of the dead. That's where you await your judgment. So that's another misunderstanding that I think a lot of Christians have, a lot of religious people. They think that like you die, you go to heaven or hell, but biblically, that's not the way it's described. Biblically, it's described as you, 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 you know, uh, in the Old Testament, you go to Hades or Sheol, and in Sheol, both good and bad await the judgment to come. Now, there's some indication that in the New Testament, maybe, Jesus maybe came and freed all those believers, it, like, you know, the, the, the Old Testament believers who before Messiah were waiting in Hades for him to come, and he freed them and brought them up to heaven. There's that possibility. So I bring that into into play in my Jesus triumphant novel, you know, where he goes down into Hades and he goes to Abraham's bosom, and which is the name that was you know, described as those who were the good in shale waiting for the, you know, for God to come and free them, that kind of a thing, and brings them up to heaven. I'm not entirely sure about that, but that's theologically, it, it, it can make some sense. So I depict that in my, my Jesus triumphant. But you can see how all these pictures, you know, the fallen angels, demons, Hades, hell, there's a lot of tradition, Christian tradition, that is not necessarily biblical. You know, I'm not saying it's all bad, but but I'm saying it's not necessarily biblical, and we've got to be careful where to understand where the traditions come from. And my goal is to go back to the biblical text and try to try to find out what it meant and understand it in its original ancient context, because a lot of the a lot of what we think now comes more from a medieval or a, a, a Reformation orient. Uh, era interpretation and that's not necessarily the original context does that make sense oh of course no I, this is what i found that it's difficult to try to you know i've got this thing in my head of god sits on a cloud satan's down there torturing people which one doesn't make any sense either because then satan would still be working for god because yeah tortured. but i but reading the bible i actually thought satan was kind of the good guy because well not the good guy but he's on god's team because that thing with um who's the guy that gets tortured job yeah it's god and satan are like hey can you tempt that guy make sure he's actually a believer satan's like oh he's just got a satan frankly pardon my language has a shitty job he's got to go down torture this guy and turns out hey this worked he was a faithful person that's not satan being bad that's he's on god's team he's just got a crappy job in the in the order of angels <laughs> you know it's just oh yeah you're the one that's got to do it sorry you know somebody's got to take out the trash you know yeah now some exactly now there are some who would agree with you in in that interpretation uh there there are some who would more in my camp which might say well you know yeah he's he's not he's not this antithesis in in the sense of completely all evil he is working he he does god's work 
but there's still contextually you still see him he's an accuser and there's a negative side to who he is and in that sense i i perceive him as as somewhat negative but just not 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 like the christians do you know not not as much like most christians do but you're right i think that the biblical depiction of him is he's part of god's whole package of how he does things and and that that a lot of religious folk don't like that notion because they don't like the idea that Satan might be doing what God wants him to do. But if that's how the Bible depicts it, then, you know, that's how it depicts it. So you're the one, you know, you're, you're the person who you have to decide for yourself, you know, uh, well, am I going to accept that? Or am I going to, am I going to say, no, I know better, you know? And so as, as a Christian, you know, I, you know, I come from the camp that, you know, look, we believe in the Bible is God's word. And I do, but sometimes I think our interpretation of of what that is is wrong, and that doesn't mean God's wrong. It means we're wrong in our understanding of him, and that's why I'm willing to say, hey, look, yeah, all right, maybe Satan is more doing God's will um, in, in the Old Testament than, than we think. But certainly by the New Testament, things things have changed, and Satan does seem to be more uh, against Messiah, clearly against Messiah, and that's a different story, and that's the story I tell in Jesus Triumphant. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I always found that weird where Satan shows up in the garden. As a, again, really from yeah. a, reading it as just a literary perspective, like, oh, this is a this is a weird one. This is fun. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, here's something really that that will sh- blow people away too. Is Michael Heiser, who is um, he's an he's a scholar who who writes a lot on this, and his new book is out called The Unseen Realm. I would highly recommend it. His research, his scholarship, has really heavily influenced my my whole series, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And he's a really good scholar, but he's one of these guys who also wants to. He's a believer in the Bible, but he doesn't, he wants to face the weird oddities of the Bible, honestly. And um, in so doing, that means some things have to change in the way we, we see things. And one of these elements is this, this Satan in the, in the garden and the serpent in the garden. He brings out this notion that if you look in the ancient language, Nahash is the Hebrew word for the serpent in the garden. And while it is true that, that it does, that word does have a serpentine uh, interpretation to it. Uh, if the word is actually kind of interesting because it, it's bigger than that. In other words, it's not necessarily just this myth of, you know, like uh, etiological myth is what they call it, where where they just, you know, talking serpents and all this. Come on, it's obviously a myth or a fable. But he actually brings out the point that there is a serpentine nature to the to the noun of the word, but the word nakash also has an adjective adjectival and a verbal essence to it. And those, the adjectival um, interpretation has to do with divination, which of course was condemned in the Bible. And divination is, uh, uh, you know, looking into into the spiritual world in a way you're not supposed to, uh, which of course the serpent represents, right? But also the verbal form, which actually uh, means, uh, I'm, sh- I'm sorry, I can't remember if it's adjectival or verbal, but the two elements are shining one, which uh, which has to do with this notion of the sons of God, shining one, but also this notion of the, the divination. And so he brings out the fact that this word Nahash might be much more than just a serpent, but it's a reference to this divine being. And it uses serpentine language um, in order to communicate this nature of the being. But it's not necessarily, he makes the argument that it's not necessarily a, a literal serpent that could just be part of the package 
Um, so if you see what I'm saying is that there's some very fascinating scholarship on all this stuff that tries, again, we, we come at the text reading this English stuff, but we don't know there's a whole world of ancient Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern context. They might interpret it and read it very differently than the way we do. And I think it behooves us, if we want to understand it properly, to try to read it through their mindset, not our own. And that's what I try to do in my storyline is of Chronicles of the Nephilim is sort of tell the story through their eyes in a fantastic way. Yeah, and it's a really good point, too, because the, the way they think about the world is different, obviously, but the way they use language was different. I mean, there's numerical value in words. There's words that mean, you know, that can be either a noun or an adjective or a verb. And there's a lot of that gets lost in translation one. And then a lot of it gets for at least for the, you know, kind of common person like myself, where it's you're not reading stuff that gets washed over with this cultural kind of passed down yeah. thing like with the satan stuff and the hell and like a great example just like in the garden of eden story in my head it's always an apple it doesn't say apple in that book yeah it's, it says fruit and i was actually reading that it probably was a banana if you look at you know <laughs> somebody somebody i guess got had time on their hands they did the research and the most common thing was it was probably some form of banana but you know it's it's a small thing but it's it is kind of major in a way that I would never have questioned that. It's just, it's an apple in my head. But then, wait a second, it doesn't say apple. It's it's not in the actual book. And a lot of stuff that people, I think, argue against, uh, you know, the Bible stuff, is not really there in a, you know, in the actual just look at the book way. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I'm glad you bring that up because that's kind of, um, it touches on, you know, a very sensitive point, a sore point in today's world with, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, with the new atheists like to attack Christianity and, and there's a lot of hatred against Christians now in our culture, and there's a lot of attacks on the Bible. And I think that a lot of times it's simply, like you say, it's it's really a cultural imperialism where we're taking our modern world mindset and we're judging this text and we're not interpreting it correctly through their eyes. For example, uh, you know the way that the the ancients wrote history, and particularly the Jews. Yes, they did have a sense of historical. Um, uh, sense to them that was actually, in a way, kind of somewhat unique in, in the ancient world. But nonetheless, they did write history in the ancient world, but the way they wrote history was a lot more lax or open than the way we do. You know, we think, well, if, if you're going to write history, you're going to write, well, these are the facts of what really happened. But if you're going to write myth or something like that, you write, a, it's completely fable with talking animals and stuff like that. But the problem is, is in the ancient world, they mesh the two together. They'll be talking about a true historical event, you know, like the Tower of Babel or something like that, you know, but they'll incorporate other terms like, you know, like I said, with Leviathan, you know, the, the, the writer of Psalm, you know, David's writing the Psalm 74 and he's saying, God takes his people through the Red Sea, which they believe was an actual historical event. But then he says he crushed the heads of Leviathan. Well, I don't think that they believe that there were there were literal uh, sea dragons or sea monsters, but they're it, they're literally using this poetic language to enhance or uh, invest the spiritual meaning that they're trying to draw out of the historical event, if that makes sense. And so my point is, is that the ancient world integrated poetry and uh, symbolism and all this stuff a lot more freely than what we would like them to do. Therefore, you know, you come, you read the, you know, you read the ancient uh, primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11 and you say, oh, this is all myth. Well, 
No, but it's not all history either because, you know, sometimes the Christians say, no, it's all history. Well, it's not all history either. Unfortunately, it's a mixture of the both, and so you have to un, 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 unwind it in order to understand what they're really talking about. And that's not an easy task, but it is an amazingly fun task. And uh, if you really take the time to, to try to understand it, it, it brings forth these amazing, fascinating things. And, and that's why I have to write about them because in some ways, you know, people don't want to do that work. You know, I understand they're not interested in ancient stuff like I am, but I, I want to make that stuff come alive. And that's why I, I do it in a novel form because I think that it does that. People can read a fun, exciting story because, my, because I have a background in um, – in um, Hollywood screenwriting and stuff. I, I write books like you're watching a movie because I don't want to, I'm look, I don't want to read some boring stuff where it goes on, rambles on and on forever about one little moment. You know, uh, I want to keep the plot moving. I want interesting characters making, you know, extreme choices, all this kind of stuff. And, and I think that when people read the Chronicles, they'll, they, they can just have the fun of this ancient story, make it come alive. But if they want if they know more or if they want to learn more, you can – a lot of – all of it's based on actual research. In fact, so much so that I said, look, when I wrote these these novels, I thought a lot of people are going to say, this is wild. Where did you, you make this stuff up? And I'm like, no, I really didn't. I drew it from a lot of other stuff. So what I wanted to do was um, – Michael Crichton did this when he was alive. He would he would write his books, and in the back of his book, he would put, put an appendix where he would describe the real science behind the fiction that he was writing, right? And I always loved that because, you know, I always thought that was fascinating. So I said, I want to do the same thing, but I want to – so at the back of each of my novels, I put an appendix where I explain a lot of the ancient biblical and ancient mythical historical research that all this stuff is based on for those who love that stuff. And you know, I thought, well, some people aren't, you know, are they going to really care? It turns out people are loving it. I get a lot of fans who write me and say, we love the, I love the appendix as much as I lo- as the novel story itself, because they really appreciate the reality that it's found, you know, the sort of the research that is based on, you know, the, the, the reality that the fiction's based on. And, um, it, it got so popular that I decided to put take the appendixes out of each of the novels. There's eight of them, and I put them all together in a separate book called "When Giants Were Upon the Earth," and uh, and that's end up being one of the best sellers in the series because some people just say, "I want to read all of the re- historical biblical research," you know, because I'm I just want that all in one book, and it kind of gives you its own storyline in a sense, you know. And uh, people have been loving that as much as the rest of the novel series. So that's been really fun. Yeah, no, I love that idea because that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. Like I, I don't have the time or the inclination to know the whole Bible. But if someone points out all the weirdo, interesting stuff in there and gives yeah. me their interpretation, cool. I'm, I'm. That sounds fun to me. But yeah, so you know, it's funny because, um, so what I did was I started my website chroniclesofthenephilim.com and on that website I put a bunch of videos that I've done uh, you see a bu- bunch of cool book trailers explanation videos I got a lot of free articles of scholarship articles that are are based on the material I'm writing about a lot of cool artwork that I actually have artwork for all the characters in all the novels and stuff. It's really cool. But one of the things I want to do is I want to provide people ongoing uh material. So you can sign up for the newsletter update on chroniclesofthenephilim.com. And once a month or so, I'll send an article about some b- 
bizarre stuff in the Bible because again, I'm I'm intrigued by the bizarre stuff, uh, and I I you know I'm amused by it, but it also it excites my imagination, and that's one thing I've I've come to discover as a Christian. I've got to say, look, there's a lot of imagination in the Bible, and it's really quite fascinating. It's not all about just this you know um, uh, you know dogmatic do this don't do that. Yeah, there's God's rules and laws in there and stuff like that, but there's a fascinating spiritual storyline and narrative and po- poetry and really fascinating spiritual poetic stuff that's in there. And I, I, I want to share that with people. So I do that in the newsletter stuff that I discover. And so you can sign up there for that. If people, if your audiences are interested. <laughs> yeah. I, no, that's kind of stuff I'm interested in. I'm so going back to the kind of, uh, modern atheist kind of attack on the Bible, which is something that I find, I mean, generally I agree with m- them more than I would agree with most kind of Christians on a lot of stuff, except for that, because it's, what do you, it's, basically I just think it's really rude and kind of pointless, but there is some, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be insulted, but there's some, some horrible stuff in there. So yeah, what do you, I mean, I guess I'm asking, what do you do about that? Like the, you know, uh, the, one of the things people like to pick on is uh, you can't wear blended cloth. Um, yeah, like, yeah, that that's really fashionable right now. It's like going through all these Levitical yeah. laws, and you can't eating shrimp is an abomination, yeah, yeah. and and you can't mix cloths, and so you people who are uh, promoting the Bible, how about that? Well, it's like you know, you obviously haven't read the Bible because you, that that's not even a problem. That's not even a minor problem, in my opinion. You know, it is completely completely irrelevant in the sense that. Again, if you un- if you read the Bible within its context, you find that yes, there is when God established his, you know, he was establishing himself separate from the nations, and there's so the notion was holiness and separateness, and he wanted to establish. I don't want you to be like all these nations. I don't want you to follow their ways because their ways are very, very abominable. Like you know, he'd say you know the Canaanites would sacrifice their kids. Uh, in the fire, they were, you know, deeply involved in sexual sins of incest. They had a lot of diseases. It was just like really grotesque. So God would institute in his rituals and laws, which again, the modern mind does not understand rituals because it's ignorant. Rituals are actually good. They reinforce community, union, history, tradition. You know, it's just the modern man in his science, scientism, uh, tends to negate those things and they negate our humanity and they miss out on a lot. Now, yes, there are some, you you could argue there could be a bad tradition, but my point is, is in that time period, a very violent bronze world uh, of Canaan, which is very, you had to survive, you had to be violent, you know, and God is entering, he's communicating to them in that time period. He's wanting to emphasize holiness and separation. So a lot of the laws symbolically reference that separateness. It's to reinforce the notion of separateness, see? But but what's interesting is by the New Testament times when the, with the coming of Messiah, that stuff is put away. The whole point of separateness, all the laws of separateness don't, you know, eat or wear separated clothes and all. And by the way, that was only reference to uh, the priesthood, which was a special a special identity in Israel to sh- to reinforce the holiness, right? But nevertheless, um, uh, so so by the time of Messiah, the all those laws of separateness are done away with in Messiah. Yes, the moral laws are still applicable, but the ceremonial and atonement laws 
are no longer in effect because Christ is the final atonement that atones for sin. And now Jew and Gentile that used to be separated, they are now one in Christ. And so all those separated laws are done away with. They were applied in a certain time in the Bronze period where it was important, but they're no longer important. So they're really not an issue. And they, they bring spiritual meaning, but they're no longer applicable. And so that's actually in the Bible itself. But again, that's if you if you read it in context and in its, in its understanding. Of course, I'm not saying that it's all easily explained because there are still tough things in the Bible. I won't deny that there are things that are tough to reconcile and understand, as there are throughout all of all things in life. Things the every every viewpoint is going to have its tough tough angle. So I'm not going to deny that. Well, I'm but I'm just the, uh... I'm just saying there's a lot of things that it. It's not the problem that people say it is. Well, I, I more mean, like, I mean, that's the stuff that people have been picking up recently. But I mean, there's, you know, uh, selling your daughter into slavery. I mean, this conversation, like, I admittedly, I have a yeah. deck of tarot cards on my table. There is a there's a thing in that book, and I don't remember the book chapter first, that you're supposed to kill me by by my admitting that. Uh huh. <laughs> Which I would prefer that you don't. So, I mean, it's just you know, I I'm I'm fine as a someone that doesn't need to attack the book constantly because. I mean, frankly, it's it's good enough for me because it's like, hey, it's a historical document. That's yeah, much respect yeah. for it. But there is a certain amount. I guess the question is, it, it, so you're using that book as a, as part of your belief system comes from that book. Right. Yes. How, yes. you know, it's just how, you know, it's so part of your belief system comes from a book that's got, you know, child slavery and, uh, you know, killing people that don't believe in your stuff, you know, that sort of thing. Right, right. So right. That, that's more the, the blended clothes stuff. I kind of get that, you know, it's. And, and look, I'll, I'll grant you that. Yeah, those things need to be addressed and answered. I would argue a lot of them are misunderstandings, like the whole, you know, like the whole slavery thing. And, and now, of course, we're getting beyond the Chronicles of Nephilim, you know, and, and I, we could talk another hour on this. Um, but, and, and fair enough, you're bringing up the points. And I would just say my arguments would be there's a lot of things like slavery that are, again, we are projecting our understanding onto English translations that are not even very good translations. So uh, just as a quick brief answer, um, the word that's translated slavery is actually servanthood, uh, bond service in, in the Bible. And a lot of what that's talking about has nothing to do with – when we think slavery, we think antebellum racial slavery. And that's not at all what it, what it had to do with. It actually was more like indentured servitude, which is basically in the ancient time period when you ran out of money and, and you were poor and you couldn't take care of yourself, you would – you would come under the auspices of a rich person. You would become their servant. And yeah, we don't like that as modern people, but you know that's very common throughout all of history. So there's a lot of this servanthood that has simply, it's just simply not slavery. Now there are certain, there are certain other things, you know, in the ancient world, when you conquered a, a people, it was very common, you'd take them as slaves and that goes back and forth. And again, that's part of an ancient bronze violent time period that's no longer the, the way things are now. But my main argument would be God does not God does not tell them to make slaves. He gives them rules to regulate for the things they are already doing. And what that means is he works within that time period and he makes sure that it doesn't get out of control because there's it's sort of like today. If if you come out today and say, Well, hey, you you know, don't abort babies or or you should kill them. you should kill anybody who aborts babies. Well, that wouldn't work in today's society because most everybody is for abortion, except for Christians, right? But of course, we we couldn't impose it and say no. Now, therefore, everyone's going to be killed. You know, if you if you commit abortion or whatever, because it you you it wouldn't work. You have to incrementally change society, and the way you do that 
is by incremental legislation, and that's what God was doing in that ancient bronze time period, because if you look at the laws that he gave related to the slavery that already existed, they were actually very unique and very forward-looking. And so that's the direction that I would go when talking about that kind of stuff. I'm not denying the fact that that's a, a weird time period compared to how we see things and the way things were going on, there's definitely difficulties that we have to deal with and reckon with. Oh, so yeah. I'm, not, I'm not denying that, but I do think Again, if we practice a little bit of our so-called modern tolerance and multiculturalism, right? Everyone's yeah, they don't oh, do that. Yeah. <laughs> look, stop judging other cult- don't don't judge Islam for women love to wear the hijab in in or hajib or whatever however you say that. Women love to wear the veil in Islam. Don't judge them. Okay. Well, then don't judge the ancient bronze world that's completely different from us. You know, and, and, you know, so there's, there's those kinds of things we have to think about. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's kind of where I come from. I just, I treat all religious systems and really any belief system in any way with an equal amount of, well, respect to you, but I'm going to mock the stupid parts because yeah. that's, but I'm going to do it equally, not just pick out one because they're all kind of silly. I mean, the, the next guy, the next religion down has him flying on a magic horse. So yeah. Yeah. Look. Yeah. And, 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 and you know what? I appreciate your perspective too, where you can also read these things. And this is, this is, this would be my appeal. It would be like, look, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't ask people that you, you know, believe the Bible is the word of God like I do. But like you, you at least appreciate it and, tr- and, and you'll read it and you'll say, okay, look, I'm not going to dismiss it all because you know that there's value in understanding the world of the ancient world and there's and there's yeah. some truth in there as there's some truth in everything right and though that would be the more open-minded ability to appreciate and, and draw from these things that I I appreciate people like that just like me I read this you know uh, you know I think Sumerians and Babylonian I think they're you know, godless religions, right? But I read this stuff and I love it and I think there's some truth in it, you know? And, yeah. and I, we, you know, what you do is you interpret it through your worldview and, and, and you help try to make sense just like an atheist would try to make sense of religion through his worldview. So every worldview tries to make sense of everything else through its own worldview. And, and the more we can understand our own bias, you know, we're very, we moderns are very good at being skeptical and critical of everyone else's worldview, but, uh, but our own. And so as a Christian, I want to say, yeah, I want to be skeptical about my own worldview, be honest and face the, the difficulties. But if you're really honest and, you know, you'll have to admit that if you're a skeptic, are you skeptical of your skepticism? Because quite frankly, that's a religion, you know? Oh, totally, so, yeah. I mean, I've said this multiple times that – People, when anybody, especially the modern atheist movement, which, you know, again, agree with all their stuff, but it's when they say, well, science says this, that's not how science works, dude. Like, yeah. You can't, yeah. like, science doesn't say there's no God, because that's a fundamental principle of science. You can't prove a universal negative. That's one of your rules. So by you saying that, you sound like an idiot. So, but yeah, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and, you know, myself, I find myself often in the middle, too, because, uh, again, bringing it back to the, to the, the Chronicles of the Nephilim, which is what all good authors do when they're trying to sell their books. No, it's well done. <laughs> Very well done. But seriously, bring it back there. You know, I often find myself in between because – and this is another reason, by the way, why I think people of all stripes will really appreciate this series because I'm in, my, in between. I find myself – I find the, uh, you know, the evangelical Christian scholars, I find them being dishonest. And I'll say this, in, in facing – not facing some of these weird things in the Bible, they, they – 
they dismiss them or they move past them because they're afraid to face them. But and and then I'll find critical scholars or skeptical scholars. They're dealing with this stuff, so I'll read their material. But I also find the skeptical scholars because I read them both, and I find it's 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 really amusing. I find them just as unwilling to face some of the obvious things that go against their view as the Christians do. So you know, it's sort of like in between if you can really learn you don't have to agree with it all but you certainly can appreciate and draw from it and so i try to try to find i try to draw from all these sources and i'm not going to deny it yeah i mean my 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 worldview is going to be more biblical but i try to also make sense and draw from these other sources in a way that i think people who know this stuff will appreciate it so you know if people love ancient history but they're not christians they're still going to appreciate my work because they're going to see how I integrate it all together. That would be my argument. I at least that's what I hope. What I hope is happening. Yeah, no, it makes sense to me. I mean, you got me interested. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I like. Is my my main thing, and this is the one that I will outrightly say I will judge and mock uh, excessively. Is anybody that believes in a literalist interpretation of the Bible? Well, I mean, word for word, you know, the yeah. prosody, jada. I will say outright, you are psychotic, and I don't want you near me because of those sections. If you believe in the literal words you believe you should kill me and I don't want you near me because that those, if you believe that's literally true, you, you can't go, Oh no, it was in context of a bronze age culture and things have changed. Now it's historical. You can make me die. So no, yeah. I don't want you. No, you're right. Me. And there yeah. are some of those and that's Christians scary. who are yeah. like that. And I would agree with you. They are, they can be very dangerous because you're right. They're not, they're not taking into consideration context and they're, they're cultural imperialists. They're using their own, understanding and they're they're actually not honoring the bible so yeah i, I would agree no, with you yeah that. and the main guy in the bible teaches in parable i mean it's yeah. just it's it is a it is a hard thing for me to get my head around that like christian the root word is christ christ teaches in parables and then it's no no the the, the entire old testament no that's real the yeah, all the yeah. stuff you know no that's that's absolutely yeah. six thousand years old like no come on that's not <laughs> the six thousand thing isn't even in the bible you just added up a bunch of stuff that was, yeah. <laughs> and look you know i would even admit that there's there's probably more things in the bible that that christians think are literal history but are not. I'm not saying, by the way, I do believe that there is a basic historicity to it though, because, um, and there's lots of scholarship to back that, you know, obviously th there was a King David, you know, some scholarship believes that there wasn't, but what I'm saying is I believe the basic historicity, but in the midst of that, there's a lot that may not be that they thought was. And so, and, and, and for example, uh, I, I think that the primeval history, Genesis one to 11, I'm definitely in the camp that believes that that's a different form of writing than the rest of the Bible, meaning, you know, when you read Abraham, it definitely has more of a historical sense to the writing. But I think that the Genesis 1 to 11 primeval history is not as much history as it is an interpretation of the broadness of history so that there's going to be a lot more uh, literary uh, playing mythical in, in, in material that's a part of it trying to explain history rather than telling you what history is. And this is where I think a lot of Christians fail because when they're trying to, like you say, trying to stick to the literal literalness. So for example, you know, Genesis 1 and the creation account, you know, it's like, no, it is not a scientific document describing what literally happened. All ancient creation narratives have a, do the same kind of thing that that genesis is doing and it's not scientific description of physical creation right yeah. but there are some christians who try to stick to that and i think that they're they're fo they're foolish they're making a mistake because you can't support 
you know, the, 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 it won't support, the truth won't support it. So, yeah, so I think that there needs to be a lot. I call what you're calling literalism, I would call hyper-literalists. That's, oh, that's, that's fine. What, Good term. That's what yeah. helps me yeah. define, <laughs> because, I'm, you know, because I would argue there are some things that, you know, yeah, no, David literally happened. And, you know, I, I think that there's a literal, but but it's more literary than it is literal because they, you know, and so so I call the the Christians who who take it all straight faced is is hyper literalists yeah. and hyper-literalist but you and I agree in, in essence yeah. on that yeah well that's a, another part of that too is is the idea of history as we know it like the term history that's a Greek thing I mean at some point someone said hey you know what we should try to do is write down what actually happened that's <laughs> that, and that happens a while later because usually it was myth and metaphor and the uh, the kind of the folk tales that's the foundations of your country. So yeah. like yeah. for America, it's, it's, uh, you know, Washington chopping down the cherry tree and my son come to my bosom and I, you shall not tell a lie and I love you. That's, yeah, yeah. we don't think that's the real story, but that's just the story of our country gets passed down. And that's what history used to be. And at yeah. some point, a Greek who I don't remember who they, what is Herodotus or one of the first guys said, yeah, maybe we should try to document the actual things, separate yeah. them out. And that comes well after biblical writing. So to expect that these are supposed to be stories of, oh, this is our history directly and all of it's true, that wasn't a concept yet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we've certainly traversed the entire yeah, well, that's, <laughs> the spectrum that, here. That's what I like to do on the show. And, you know, and in the end, you sound interesting, and hopefully people will go out and, and buy, the, uh, buy the books, Chronicles of the Nephilim. Which I'm sure I'm saying wrong. I can never say that out loud. Yeah, it's a hard one. Uh, uh, I, I think it can. It, it's it's legitimate to say Nephilim, Nephilim. I actually, uh, the scholarship I've read said makes the argument that the actual Hebrew pronunciation would be more Nephilim, but that's too hard to say. So I'm yeah. a, just Nephilim is fine. <laughs> yeah, and then Chronicles it, of the Nephilim. <laughs> and then it's one of those things where you know I, I had I had Dr. Heiser on where. It, you know, that word gets ruined by stupid uh, ancient astronaut things. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love his work on the on that. And the ancient, by the way, my series, like I said, he was he heavily, heavily influenced my series. So in a way, my series is an antidote to the ancient aliens theory, because I have the Anunnaki in my series, by the way, you know, but mine, of course, has a has a supernatural or a spiritual uh, interpretation to it. But uh, nevertheless, I. You know, I agree with Heiser, and I don't. I don't accept the ancient aliens theory, but I deal with a lot of that mythology because, you know, there's the Sumerians did talk about things like the Anunnaki and 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 such, and and so they're in they're in my series as well. Yeah, well, wait, there we go. We've, we got uh, we got the ancient aliens people sold. We got the skeptics <laughs> sold. Hopefully, we get some people around. So, uh, where can they find you? What's what's your contact information? Well, you know, to, the two things are: is the website, if you want to learn more information on it and see cool stuff, is chroniclesofthenephilim.com. Um, or if you just want to go, the books are all exclusively sold on Kindle, paperback, and audio at Amazon. And um, it's just, yeah, everything's at Amazon. I've been amazed to find out how many people are buying the audiobooks these days. I'm, I'm, I'm selling as many audiobooks as half of my sales are in our, our audiobooks. And so um, if people who love audiobooks, you'll love it too, because I do the reading and I know the material and I'm very dramatic and emotional, as you can hear. And so people have been telling me, I'm not just saying this, I, I, I was worried, I wasn't sure if I would be good, but people have been telling me, no, you, you make the story come alive. So if you love audiobooks, 
everything can be gotten at Amazon.com. And um, you can also learn a lot of stuff about the books there as well. Yeah, very cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was fun. Thanks for it. having me, Alex. I appreciate it. Uh, no problem. I hope you have a, a very nice night. Uh, you're on my coast. So yeah, have a nice night and you know, good luck on the, the next work. Alrighty. Thanks. See ya.